Anytime you, you see only part of something, it's really easy to misunderstand the whole if you only see a part. Isn't that true? It doesn't matter if you're looking at only part of an object, only part of a situation, um, only part of whatever. It's really easy to misunderstand the whole thing if you can only see part of it. I remember when we lived in Kansas City area, I didn't have much time for fishing, but on a walk, Rachel and I walked over this bridge and looked down into the, the creek and where this pool was, I could tell there was little fish in this pool. And so one day we had time. Uh, I took the kids and we went down there. We were going to try to catch some of these, these little fish. And uh, said it's going to hurt me after this morning's sermon, but that's okay. Uh, the Chiefs game will take his mind off this story. But we were, we're, so we went down there and I don't remember which kid put the pole in first. And the bobber, I mean, just slowly mm, sunk straight down. And man, I think it might have been Ike. He was fighting that thing and it was way more than he could handle. What in the world? And so I took the rod and I'm fighting what turned out to be a giant snapping turtle. And I mean, even by snapping turtle standards, this thing was a monster. And if you've ever caught one, you know they don't come up easily, just one little step at a time. And slowly, that ancient head of that turtle is the only thing that appeared from out of that. You know, have you ever got up close and personal to a snapping turtle head? Just his head and neck, and the kids were so excited, and little Seti boy was only a kindergartner, and he started yelling, oh my gosh, it's a dinosaur! <laughs> and, you know, he couldn't see the shell. All he could see was that, and you think about it, it kind of looks like a brontosaurus or something. See, if you only see part of something, it's really easy to, to, to misunderstand, to be confused about the whole thing that you're looking at. Well, the Apostle Paul, when he sat down to write this book of Romans, he wanted to make sure <clears throat> that he gave a full picture of the gospel. And I'm so glad that he did. Because it's really easy to consider things of God, to consider the gospel, and find one little aspect of God or of Christianity and make the mistake of building your whole picture of God from one little part. For example, in 1 John we're told that God is love. And he is. But that's not all God is. And in fact... If we don't understand what Paul is going to begin explaining to us today, and through about two-thirds of the way through chapter 3, that's the first section of the body of the book of Romans, and it's about God's wrath. And if we don't have an accurate picture of the wrath of God, we will not understand what the, the love of God really is. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, you know, I could never believe in a God of wrath. Or my God would never send people to hell. Because my God is a God of love. You ever heard something like that? That's a misunderstanding of who God is and really what his love 
means. So what we're going to embark on today is the first bite of a larger chunk of the first section of the book of Romans, and it's about the wrath of God. And if we don't understand God's wrath, we can't understand God's love. Last week, we looked at just these two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul gives us the main idea of this book. And in the main idea of the book, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. You know why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So last week, one main point was this. The gospel is the only way God can point his power at human beings in a way where they are saved and not condemned. That's how God loves people, through the gospel. That's how they're saved. Now, if people are saved by God, what are they saved from? You know the ultimate answer to that question. If you are saved, you're actually saved from God. You're saved from the wrath of God. And the only way God points his power at people in a way where they are saved is through the gospel. And so God's love and God's wrath are not mutually exclusive. They're part of the same God. The clearest place we see that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul's explaining the gospel, but he hasn't even really got to the gospel yet. But we know what it is because I looked ahead and I read the rest of the book before I started this. Did God love, did the Father love Jesus the Son? Did he love him? Did he love the Son in whom he's well pleased, who never did anything wrong? Yes. But what did the Father do to the Son at the cross? He, just, he destroyed him. He made him offensive to him. The cross is where we see God's wrath against sin and where we are invited to have Jesus be the shield, the only shield from God's wrath. His wrath will either be poured out there or it will be poured out here. That's how God loves through the gospel. He saves people from the wrath that is to come. You know, if there's any other way for people to be saved besides the gospel, surely God would not have done that to the son he loved, right? If there was any other way we could be saved. Also last week, Paul said this, for in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The rightness of God is revealed through the gospel. And it's easy, of course. The gospel is how people are saved from hell and eternal death. So obviously that is right for God to save us. And it is. But the righteousness of God is not the only thing that's being revealed that's a part of the gospel. Because look at the very next verse. We're going to start reading our passage. Verse 17, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And then our passage today starts this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Because that which is known about God is evident within people. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, people, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And they didn't give thanks. Instead, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. There's our passage for today. It's how Paul begins this first section of the body of this letter, where here's what Paul's doing. He needs to explain the need for the gospel. Why did Jesus need to die? Paul says, before I can explain that to you, I have to make sure you understand what you need saved from. And so he starts like this. Everybody listen there in Rome. The wrath of God like, is being revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, I know the wrath of God is not an enjoyable thing to dwell on. It's not. It's not a fun thing to think about. Paul thought it was important, though, because we need to understand what the author to the Hebrews said. You know what the author of the Hebrews said about people, just people just like you and me, who stand before God, but they're not covered by the blood of Jesus. The author of the Hebrews, to the, the letter of the Hebrews says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because he's, he's a God of wrath. And that wrath, the wrath of God, is being revealed. We can see in the past, if we would turn backwards in our Bible, we could point to places where God's wrath has been poured out on people on the earth in the past. Can you think of any? The wrath of God was poured out first in the garden where God said, Adam, Eve, out of here. That was God's wrath. The flood of Genesis, right? That was God's wrath being poured out on the world. Uh, in, in the Exodus, when the, the Egyptians, all the stuff that happened to the Egyptians, it was the wrath of God. The Korahites, if you know that story, they were swallowed. Moses's, or excuse me, Aaron's sons, the first priest, struck dead. Ananias and Sapphira, if you know their story, the wrath of God has been in the past revealed. We also know in the future, God's wrath is going to be revealed. It's stored up. And it will be poured out in judgment against the whole earth and against individuals. But Paul's main focus, I am convinced in this section, is to talk about the wrath of God that is currently being revealed. What does God's wrath look like that's coming down on people right now all over the world? 
You have to come back next week and we'll talk about what it looks like. Today, Paul wants to share with us who earns it. So here's how he begins. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against who? Against whom? Well, against all ungodliness and righteousness of, here's the who, people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's who deserves the wrath of God. People who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. What does that mean? That's what the rest of this sermon is about. That's what the rest of this little passage is about. It's an explanation of just who the people are that suppress the truth. What truth? I'll tell you in a minute. And how do they suppress it? You know, truth is just that. It's true. You can't change the truth, can you? I mean, it doesn't matter how many people believe a lie. It doesn't make the lie true. It doesn't matter how many people reject the truth. It doesn't make that truth false. You can't change the truth, but you know what you can do? You can suppress the truth. You can hide that truth. You can ignore that truth. You can pretend like that truth isn't really true. That's suppressing the truth. And Paul's going to let us know next what the truth is that people suppress that makes them ungodly and unrighteous and earns for them, the wrath of God. In the next two verses, verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us, here's the truth that's suppressed. That's suppressed. If, I were to ask, if I were to ask you before we started, hey, what sin do you think earns people the wrath of God the most? I'm not sure any of us would have, would, have, would have gotten this answer, but here's the root sin that earns the wrath of God. You know what it is? Paul says, you have enough evidence to know there is a God who created all this. And you live like that's not true. See, the truth is, we all know somewhere deep in our hearts there is a creator who created everything that has been created. If he made this, he made us, this world, he made you, he made me. If, if we are his, he made us, we are accountable to our creator. We should want to know what he's like, what he expects, what he wants from me. But we don't. That's the root sin that earns the wrath of God. Paul says, the wrath of God, as he just said, the wrath of God's being poured out on all these kind of people who suppress the truth. Here's why. Because what can be known about God is plain to people. Because God has made it plain to them, the truth plain to them. For since the creation of the world... God's individual, uh, excuse me, invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen because they're understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. Paul says we have enough evidence to know 
that there really is a God out there. God has made that much plain. Anyone who does not believe that a God created everything that has been created just doesn't want to be accountable to a creator God. There's too much evidence. Now, there's a lot of people who would disagree with what I just said. There's a lot of people who would say, no, Maxwell, the only reason you believe in God is because you were born to parents who believed in God. And that part is true. Tom and Mary Maxwell both believe in God. That's my parents. But listen, when I left their house, to my shame, I left the church. I didn't care what they believed. In fact, I wanted to do the opposite of whatever they said. And and I graduated from three secular um, institutions of higher learning way before I ever went to seminary. And I heard all of the arguments about how this plate, this universe just came by a great accident. And even though I didn't like my parents' God, I tried to ignore that he existed. None of that made a lick of sense to me. It's impossible. It's just impossible. I've shared these two guys' stories before. I want to share them again just because it fits so good here. I want to tell you the story of two men. This guy right here, his name is Dr. Thomas Berain. He was my advisor in seminary. He's the dean of Calvary Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. But he was not born the dean of the seminary because that would have been weird. He was actually raised as an atheist. And he was a committed atheist. And his first career, he was a research chemist. And a committed atheist. His wife was also. Not the chemist part, but the atheist part. But something would nag at Dr. Burain in the back of his brain, and in his most honest moments, he would allow it to come into the front of his brain. And here's what it was. During his, his work, his whole career, his whole life as a research chemist was dependent upon the predictability and the order of everything that was here. You know what the periodic table is? Don't go into flashbacks and convulsions. I'm not going to take you to science class or anything, Okay. But do you remember the periodic table? Are you at least aware that it was hanging in a classroom at one point that you were in? The reason that exists and hasn't changed for a long, long time is because all the elements that make up our world behave incredibly predictably. If you put this element next to this element, they will do the same thing every time. It's completely predictable and ordered. You don't even have to do the experiment. You can just write it out on paper and know what's going to happen. We call it chemistry class. It's awful. But it was his job. And here's what kept going through his mind. If all of this just was an accident of chaos, shouldn't nature be, you know, a little more chaotic? Why does this happen exactly, predictably, every time? If it just is an accident of chaos, it made no sense to him. You know what he discovered? I have to admit, there's a God who created this, and then I'd better figure out who he is and what he expects. Fast forward 25 years, and he's the dean of a seminary. The next guy on the right there, I've never met him. His name's Dr. Francis Collins. 
He was the last director of the Human Genome Project. Over decades, the Human Genome Project uh, mapped out all, I will get this number wrong, so I want, I want to find it here. They, the, the Human Genome Project successfully mapped out all 3.1 billion letters in the human genome. Okay, so if you get inside your DNA, if you look at your genes, there are 3.1 billion letters in a sequence that makes you, you. And these guys, he was the, it took way longer than he worked there, but he was the guy that closed the door. He, they were, he was the director when they completed the Human Genome Project. And he was on NPR radio. It was a big deal. That we got done. We mapped this out. And NPR, National Public Radio, so this is not you know, a Billy Graham crusade broadcast or anything like this. They asked him, what is the biggest thing you learned as director of the Human Genome Project? You know what he said? He said, I became convinced there had to be a God who created this. He was an atheist, and studying human genes made him a theist, made him at least believe in God, because he said it's way more complex than any of us even knew. And he's actually convinced inside the 3.1 billion letters, that's not as simple as it gets. If we could, we could break that down into the parts that make it. It's even more complex than we know. And he's, there's just no, there's no possible way that we are here from accident. Someone had to make this. And then he wrote an essay in Newsweek magazine back when people used to like print magazines called Why This Scientist Believes in God and He is Now a Committed Christian Rather Than a Committed Atheist. Because no matter what he wanted to believe, no matter what would advance his career scientifically, he found out that what can be known about God is plain. You ever heard somebody say something like this? Or have you ever said something like this? If God is real, why doesn't he just do something right now and let me know that he's real and then I'll believe? I won't make you raise your hand, but some of us have said stuff like that. Right? Why does he flicker the lights or something and then I'll know he's real? Why does God? He already has. He created everything out of nothing. And he left his imprints, his fingerprints all over it. The, the vast size of the universe, the billions of galaxies, which one of ours is just one tiny one. And inside our huge galaxy, our tiny little solar system. And inside that little solar system, there's one sun and one planet and everything has to be just perfect. If the, the rotation or the, the tilt or the orbit of our earth, the gravitational pull, the size of the sun versus the size of our earth, if any of that was changed by the tiniest fraction, we would, life would not be possible here. He created it all out of nothing. And the same God, according to the book of Colossians, his name is Jesus, holds it all together. And we think we'd be convinced if he flicked the lights. Seriously. Your toddler can flick the lights on and off. This much we can know. There's a God who made this. Now, Paul is saying down here, he says, this is the first time Paul will say this in two times in this section of the book, not today's sermon, but this bigger section, that we, are, we will be without excuse before God. You know what that means? 
That means if this God is real and you are accountable to him and you stand before him in judgment one day, you are not going to have an excuse why you don't deserve judgment. That's what Paul is saying. And here is the first reason why, and it's enough. Paul is not saying, if you believe in God, that will be enough. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul, Paul has already said the only way God people will be saved is through the, what's the word? Gospel. He's already said that. That's the main idea of the book. He's just telling us the need for the gospel. So we can't say to God, you can't judge me according to the Bible. I've never seen a Bible. You can't judge me according to the law. I've never read the law. You can't judge me based on what Jesus did. Nobody ever told me about Jesus. You, everyone is without excuse. Here's why. Reason number one. We can stand before God and God can say, did you have enough evidence to know I was here? Everyone must admit yes. Next question. Did you live like you cared? And everyone will answer no. That's what leaves us without excuse. God doesn't have to judge us by his law. We can't get close to the law. All he has to do is ask, could you tell I was here? Did you live like you cared? Thank you and drive through. That's what leaves us inexcusable before God. How much more us who were born in places where God and his gospel are proclaimed. And we do have so much more information. How much more will someone like us be without excuse when we know he is real and we live as if he is not? Next, last three verses of today's passage, what Paul is going to do is, is he's going to go back into history and give us a little history lesson to show how this root sin, remember the root, the root sin, the truth we suppress is this. The truth is there's a God we're accountable to and we live like that's not true. He's going to go back in, her, in history and show us an example of how that works its way out in people's lives. Paul says, for although they knew God, they didn't glorify God. They didn't give him thanks. Instead, they became futile in their thoughts. Their senseless hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they started idolatry. Uh, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Here's what Paul's saying there. If we go back in time far enough, we can find at least a couple of instances in human history where there were no unbelievers on earth, right? If you want to start at the very beginning, Adam and Eve and their kids, even after they got kicked out of the garden, they absolutely knew God, right? We can fast forward a few chapters in the book of Genesis. When Noah and his family got out of the giant floating storage unit, there were no unbelievers on earth, right? But an interesting thing happened. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him and they didn't give him thanks. Now, why would that happen? There had to be somebody who was the first one to walk. I don't know if it was uh, 
Noah's kids, Noah's grandkids, Noah's great-grandkids, but somebody had to be, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, whether they said it out loud or not, they had to be like, yeah, I know God is real, but eh, it's just not for me. Why? Why? Because they knew the one true God wanted them to glorify him as God and give him thanks. And ain't nobody got time for that. In our hearts, we know God is real and we know what he wants. I said this, the introduction of the book of Romans. Do you remember what, what is our purpose? Why were you made? Why were you created by that creator God? To glorify the one who made you, to make him look good. We don't want that. I don't want to glorify God. I don't want to give him thanks. I want to glorify me. I want people to be impressed with me. I don't want to thank God for what I have, the talents, the abilities, the work ethic, all of it. I want people to look what I've made and think, man, look at that guy. I wish I was more like him. That's what we want. And one of Noah's kids or grandkids or great-grandkids said, I know that God and I know what he wants. And I don't want to play along. But we were made to worship something. So here's what started happening. Idolatry. Do you know, non-Christian smart people would have you believe, you turn on the History Channel, um, by the way, anytime you watch the History Channel that has anything to do with Christianity, take it with an entire shaker of salt, right? Like the little cylinder of salt, the whole thing, okay? Here's what they would have you believe. If you go back far enough in human history, everybody's a polytheist, and they worshiped all these weird little gods that were behind everything. And eventually we evolved into the idea of monotheism. The Bible says that's not true. Paul says that's not true. Paul says if you go back far enough, everybody was a monotheist that knew there was one God and knew who he was. We walked because we don't want to give praise and thanks and honor to that God. We want that for ourselves. So we walk, but we can't be atheists because we're not idiots. There's too much evidence to know there's power out there. This isn't by accident. So here's what people started doing. They started making these little gods. They would go, the, prophet, the prophets in the Old Testament would make fun of this all the time. This is ridiculous. You cut down a tree. Half of it you heat your house with and cook your food with. The other half you carve into some figure and you call it a god and bow down and worship it and ask it for stuff. Now why on earth would people who considered themselves to be smart, they wanted to appear smart, why would people do stuff so dumb? I know why. Ancient people, they worship, what kind of gods did they worship? It doesn't matter what culture you go to. They might worship the God of, somebody fill in the blank for me. They might have a God of fire, God of sun, gods that control weather, God of the harvest. They had gods that controlled health and disease. You know why we made up gods like that? Because we made ourselves the point. We want honor and significance, right? But I'm not going to have honor and significance if I'm a leper. So I'm going to find some God 
you know, when they, they make a little statue and the head looks like a dog and the body looks like a person, they're really not worshiping the statue. They think there's some power behind that that controls disease. And maybe I can manipulate that power into giving me what I want, which in this case is health. And then they have another God. I really want to get ahead. I will feel significant if I raise more barley than my neighbor does. So I'm going to pray to the God of the harvest, the God that controls weather, the gods that do all this stuff, that control blight or, or whatever. If my kid is off at war, I'm going to pray to the God of war. I pray to fertility gods because social security didn't exist yet, right? You had to have a lot of kids and they took care of you when you got old. I wanted somebody else to be my special someone. So we made up gods like Cupid who could make somebody else think I'm awesome. That's where idolatry came from. It all comes back to this. I know there's a God, but I don't care what he wants. I'm too busy trying to figure out what I want. And if there are other powers out here that can help me get what I want, then I will gladly exchange the glory of God for these other forces that might give me what I want. Now, doesn't it seem silly to carve a rock into a certain shape and bow down to it and ask it for stuff? Be honest. Does that sound ridiculous? It is. That's why it sounds that way. You know what Paul calls it? Paul calls it being futile. Futile. There's nothing more futile than making your own God and asking it for stuff. Wouldn't you agree? Thank goodness. We are not like those foolish folks. We would never have a futile life that futile and hearts that senseless and dark. We would never exchange the glory of the immortal God for stuff. Except for, yeah, we would. We may not carve our own idol and bow down to it, but remember, that's the symptom. Remember the original problem. The original problem is, I know there's a God and I live like there's not. I know I'm accountable to a creator. That's the truth. And I live with my fingers in my ears. No, 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 no. He's not real. He can't tell me. He won't hear me. He can't see this. That's what leaves us without excuse. And so we create a life where I am the point. You want, to hear a, you want to hear a story of futility? The God who created universes. He created everything out of nothing, created this planet, sustained life on it, holds it together, and he created little tiny you and little tiny me. And I try to pretend that I am the point of life. That's futile. It's ridiculous. And Paul begins his argument about who deserves the wrath of God by saying, and it's every single one of us. That's why you are without excuse. I'm so glad this book doesn't end right here. Trust me, there's more good coming. 
Do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ does? It puts the light back in our dark hearts. It puts God back on the throne of our lives. And it erases the futility. Through the gospel, I can live a life that honors God. I can live to make him look good. I can, men, I can live so that other people think he is impressive. I can be like John the Baptist who said he must increase, I must decrease. I can stop wasting my life trying to prove to everyone else that I am the point when I know that's futile and ridiculous and makes my heart dark. A friend of mine sent me the following illustration today that I it was or uh, this week, and it was better than I could explain it. Francis Chan, little illustration. Uh, Seth's going to fast forward to it, but we're going to end with this rope illustration. Well, that made you feel good, didn't it? Remember. The section that we are in is to tell us the need for the gospel. Okay? It was not to, to guilt you into giving more money. Yeah, that's, that's what you, it is because to, to illustrate how badly you need the gospel. Because you are without excuse before God, and so am I. You know why? Because He is real, He created all this. We are accountable to him, and we suppress that truth every day. I'm so grateful for what we're about to sing. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You are without excuse, but you are not without hope. Because there is a God who saves through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. The musicians will come forward and we'll end our time together. Father God, we, we are, are a people without excuse before you because we know that you are real. We know you and we pretend and we live as if that's not true. We are without excuse. We have earned your wrath, but you have given your son because even though our sins were many, your mercy is more. God, my, may we be a people who live not trying to do good stuff so you'll let us into heaven, but we will live out our purpose to glorify our creator. And we can do that now during the red line as well as we can do that through all of eternity. Grow us into a people like that and receive our worship while we finish in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and finish with us.